Welcome to this week's lecture of the 10-Minute Medic. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Young. This week's podcast is entitled Tiny Bubbles. It looks at the pathophysiology, the recognition, and management of pulmonary embolism. PE is a life-threatening emergency caused by blood clot obstructing the pulmonary arteries, leading to impaired gas exchange and potential cardiovascular collapse. Early identification and prompt intervention are crucial to improve patient outcomes. Thrombus formation and subsequent embolization, which can lead to PE, are complex processes that involve both the local as well as systemic factors within the body. Thrombosis is a process of a blood clot formation within the vascular system. This process is typically a protective mechanism that prevents us from bleeding out following the injury. However, pathological thrombus formation can occur in the venous system, particularly in the deep veins of the legs, also known as a deep vein thrombosis or a DVT, where blood flow is slowed or has been disrupted, creating an environment conducive to clot formation. Damage to the inner lining of blood vessels, which can result from trauma, surgery, inflammation, or invasive procedures, exposes the underlying tissue. This exposure triggers the clotting cascade, which is an intricate series of events that involve the activation of platelets as well as clotting factors. Let's take a brief look at the clotting cascade so that we can better understand how that happens. The clotting cascade is a complex process, as I said earlier, that our body uses to stop bleeding when we get injured. Here's a simplified explanation. When you get a cut or an injury that causes bleeding, your body needs to stop the bleeding to prevent excessive blood loss. The blood vessels at the site of the injury narrow or constrict to reduce blood flow to the injured area, slowing down the bleeding, but only temporarily. Tiny cell fragments called platelets in your blood are activated. They start to get really sticky, and they start sticking to the injured blood vessel walls as well as to themselves. Platelets create a temporary plug at the injury site. They release chemicals that attract more platelets and help form a small clot. Now, this is where it gets a little more complex, not a lot, but proteins in your blood interact in a series of steps known as a coagulation cascade. These proteins work together to form strong, stable blood clot. Some key players include fibrinogen, thrombin, and clotting factors like clotting factor 8 and factor 9. The final step involves the conversion of fibrinogen into long, sticky strands of fibrin. These strands weave together to create a mesh that reinforces the platelet plug, forming a solid clot. The next time that you get an injury on your arm or leg, look really closely, especially if you have a magnifying glass, and you can actually see some of these strands of fibrin. As the clot matures, it traps red blood cells and other components, creating a scab. This scab protects the wound and helps it to heal. Now, again, understanding the clot cascade can help you to come up with a treatment plan to interrupt this process when it's necessary. Conditions such as prolonged immobility, heart failure, or compression of a vein by a tumor or during long flights or bed rest can lead to venous stasis. Venous stasis refers to a medical condition in which there is poor or sluggish blood flow through the veins, typically in the lower extremities. 
Within areas of stasis, blood platelets and coagulation factors accumulate, enhancing the likelihood of clot formation. An increased tendency of the blood to clot or to become hypercoagulable can be due to a genetic condition, such as uh, different factor mutations as far as clotting factors goes, or acquired states like pregnancy, oral contraceptive use, hormone replacement therapy, certain cancers, or even as a response to surgery. Once formed, a thrombus can grow by accumulating more platelets and fibrin, the protein strands that provide structure to the clot. Now, an embolus is kind of like a thrombus, but it is different in that it is dislodged from its site of origin and travels through the bloodstream. In the case of PE, the embolus typically originates from a DVT and travels through the veins, passing the right side of the heart and lodging in the pulmonary arteries. The transition from a thrombus to an embolus can occur spontaneously or from an external factor such as physical activity or trauma. The size of the embolus and where it lodges in the pulmonary arterial system determines the severity of the PE symptoms. Now, if your patient has a large thrombus, this can cause significant obstruction, leading to a sudden decrease in blood flow to the lungs, which can be life-threatening and fatal. Smaller emboli may lodge in the smaller branches of the pulmonary arteries, often causing less severe symptoms, but still clinically significant concern. Understanding this is important as it underscores the importance of rapid assessment and intervention. The presence of risk factors for DVT coupled with clinical signs and symptoms suggestive of a PE warrants immediate pre-hospital care and transport to an emergency facility for definitive diagnosis and treatment. The body's compensatory response to a PE involves both the respiratory and cardiovascular adjustments. These mechanisms aim to maintain oxygenation and circulatory stability, but can become overwhelmed, leading to right ventricular overload and potential failure. So what is the initial compensatory response to a PE as shown in the body? Well, first we'll see an increased respiratory rate. Hypoxemia caused by the obstruction of blood flow through the lungs and the resulting mismatch between ventilation and perfusion triggers an increase in the respiratory rate to enhance oxygen intake and carbon dioxide elimination. Localized bronchoconstriction can also occur in response to hypoxemia, redirecting airflow to better ventilated areas of the lung. This is known as a physiological shunt. Hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction. This is an autoregulatory mechanism where the small pulmonary arteries constrict in the presence of alveolar hypoxia. They do this to attempt to divert blood to well-ventilated areas of the lung to improve the oxygenation of the cells. The sympathetic nervous system responds to hypoxemia and hypotension by increasing the heart rate and constricting peripheral vessels aimed at maintaining blood pressure and cardiac output. Now, the body may also activate further coagulation pathways in response to vascular injury, which can paradoxically make the situation worse. The common symptoms of a pulmonary embolism can vary greatly depending on the size of the embolus, the extent of the obstruction, and the patient's underlying health. However, there are several classic signs and symptoms that you need to recognize which could potentially suggest a PE. Most common symptom is shortness of breath or dyspnea. It typically is a sudden and onset 
and can range from mild to severe, often getting worse with exertion. Patients will often describe a sharp, stabbing chest pain that may become worse with deep breathing, also known as pleuritic type of pain. It also can get worse when they cough, eat, or bend. As we said earlier, the respiratory rate will go up, and this is a common response to hypoxemia and the body's attempt to increase oxygen delivery. Your patient may have a cough. The cough may be non-productive or dry or may produce bloody or blood-streaked sputum. The heart rate will often be faster than normal, again, as a compensatory mechanism to maintain cardiac output in the face of increased pulmonary vascular resistance. Your patient may have a syncopal episode. Now, this occurs less frequently, but can result from a significant decrease in cardiac output due to a large embolus or right ventricular failure. Blood pressure may drop, especially in a massive PE, as a result of decreased cardiac output. Again, because of the lack of oxygen, your patient may become cyanotic. Keep in mind, cyanosis is almost always a late symptom to show up. Additionally, your patient may have a low-grade fever that sometimes occurs with this, as well as excessive diaphoresis that may be there, not so much because of the fever, but due to sympathetic nervous system activation. Now, it's important for you to assess these symptoms and consider the patient's history, including recent surgery, immobility, or a history of DVT or PE, which could increase the likelihood of a PE diagnosis. The presence of one or more of these symptoms, particularly in a patient with risk factors for an embolism, warrants immediate pre-hospital intervention and rapid transport to an emergency facility. Treatment of a pulmonary embolism by paramedics focuses on stabilizing the patient and providing supportive care while rapidly transporting the patient to the nearest appropriate facility. Here are some key steps that you as a paramedic should consider taking when managing a PE. First of all, do a good assessment. Conduct a primary assessment, including airway, breathing, circulation, as well as disability, which looks at the neurological status and exposure, looking for signs of deep vein thrombosis. While you're doing this, get a thorough history, including risk factors for PE, such as a recent surgery, immobilization, history of DVT or PE, long-distance travel, cancer, or the use of hormone therapy. Administer oxygen via non-rebreather mask or nasal cannula to maintain an SBO2 above 94% or as high as possible with patients who have COPD. Apply cardiac monitor to watch the heart rate and the rhythm for any sites of right heart strain or other arrhythmias that may come with it. Make sure you get your IV started so that if your patient crashes, now you will have uh, a route to administer medications. Try to get that started as early as you can because remember one of the things that can happen is our patient's blood pressure can begin to go down. Keep your patient in a position of comfort, which is usually a semi-fowler sitting up at a 30 to 45 degree angle to help with their, their breathing. Fluid resuscitation may be necessary if the patient is hypotensive, but you need to be careful. Listen for breath sounds as excessive fluids may worsen right ventricular failure. If the patient has chest pain and no contraindications are present, you may consider nitroglycerin, but be very careful because of the potential hypotension. Then, 
you transport. You transport this patient to the appropriate facility that can deal with pulmonary embolism. Let the facility know as soon as you possibly can. The specifics of pre-hospital treatment for PE can vary based on whatever your protocols are as well as your scope of practice in your region. Additionally, the availability of certain medications and the ability to perform advanced interventions can differ, such as the potential in some rare areas of the country that the patient can begin getting IV anticoagulants pre-hospital. Stay within your scope of practice or follow the protocols set by your medical directors and local regulatory bodies. On the next episode of the 10-Minute Medic, we take a look at the EKG pattern seen within the COPD patient. Pulmonary EKG patterns refer to specific changes or abnormalities in the electrical activity of the heart as recorded on an EKG that are indicative of conditions affecting the pulmonary system such as lung disease or pulmonary hypertension. These patterns are important to identify because they can provide valuable diagnostic information and guide your treatment decisions as a paramedic. Thanks again for joining this session of the 10-Minute Medic. Make sure you send your suggestions to our Facebook page and let us know what you would like to hear in a future podcast. If you're selected, we'll give you a shout out and we'll send you some pretty cool bling. Thanks again.